Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. Welcome back to Savage to Sage. This is Daniel, and I'm excited to be joined today by Nick Smorelli. He is the CEO of Goodellnet and also the host of the Zero Excuses podcast. Welcome, Nick. Hey, good to be here. Why don't you start out by telling us about Zero Excuses and why you started that podcast in the first place? Great. No, I. Uh, it's been an interesting journey. Actually, I think we're coming on almost exactly 12 months since we launched that show. I uh, the Kind of the inception of the idea, It's it's been one of those ideas that have been brewing for a while, kind of much like business ideas. It just kind of stews for a bit and then it kind of hits some sort of head. And I actually, I, I wish I could kind of crystallize what moment said, like we need to make it real, but... So Zero Excuses is basically, it, it echoes one of the values of Goodellnet, which is 100% responsibility, 0% excuses. It's an accountability uh, scorecard. And for me, I think I think it's really been 20 years in the making of people, one of my bigger pet peeves is when people say they can't do something because of something else. Um, it is It is one of my bigger pet peeves that when people don't live up to their full human potential and they say, well, if I only could if... I did X. I only could if I did this, or I would change my eating habits if it was if it wasn't for the fact that if I you know work nine hours a day and I can't do that. And so I think for me, it's this kind of general pet peeve with blaming an outside force and not taking self accountability. So that's really the the type of people we try to bring on the show is people that are incredibly successful. Some of them are just amazing parents with amazing business stories. Some of them have climbed all the seven top mountains in all seven continents or skied across. Uh, the North Pole or done some crazy things, but also some of them are just kind of humble stories of people impacting local communities and doing big things and not, again, not adding excuses for why they can't do something somewhat monumental. And so I, I, I love those stories. They're inspiring to me and hopefully our listenership are inspired by it as well. Yeah, I love that. So talk about your own journey and in, in Zero Excuses. Specifically, you know, I know you weren't the founder of Goodellnet, but you were one of the first employees there and now you lead it. But in those early days, which what we call the savage days of when you're, you know, when you're an integral part of standing up a business, what did that zero excuses framework look like for you back then? Absolutely. And I, again, it, it was such a, it was such a shift for me. So I, my career started off at Ingersoll Rand uh, in 2002 where I started in St. Louis, moved to New York City, moved to Shanghai, China, moved to Charlotte, moved to Atlanta, and then we moved to Indy. So a lot of movement. Um, but I was always working for a bigger, kind of bigger enterprise. And and while I learned a lot, and I'm again, I, I would credit a lot of the success of Goodellnet to the learnings of that that experience, it was always feeling like I was working hard for somebody else. And I never got to see the bounds of my own potential. To the extent that I feel like I was creating excuses, I, I, you know, I was, I was in a operations role for a while, then in a sales and marketing role, and I found myself blaming the factory for not getting things on time, for me not hitting sales goals, and I, it was, it was so dissonant to my personality. The opportunity to jump ship, um, I was making fantastic money for being twenty-seven years old at the time. Um, I was newly married, so. The good thing about that is, you know, kind of life feels like it's easy and wonderful at that at that time. No kids yet, and so my wife and I, uh, she also works. And I said, "Hey, I'm going to leave this great paying job and and make 
basically nothing for two or three years, which I did, um, in order to kind of be a part of what I thought was a, a pretty amazing community of of individuals who are getting Goodellnet off the ground. So Joe Goodell started the company. Tom Stem was the, one, the other owners, and they'd kind of built. I was employee number four. Um, they built a foundation of what I thought was a good company. I liked, I liked the way that they did business, and I felt like the skills that I could bring to the table were complementary. And I think it's important to note, even back then, going back to the zero excuses mentality, is I, I came in, um, I came in as an owner, well, had earned my earned my place as an owner, but but came in with the intent to become one, and I had all the team and the future teams would all be reporting through me. I if my computer breaks. Um, if an application breaks or if anybody asks me any questions about technology, especially back then, I would freak out um, and like everybody else. I don't have a technology background. In no way was I an expert in technology, but I knew that I could handle the business part of it. And so it was a bit odd saying, hey, I'm going to go kind of help run an organization built on technology consulting without a technology background. And I think arguably, if, if we reflect on some of the best things that's ever happened is me being so dumb at technology, it actually made me a better business leader because I could only focus on the things I, I felt like I could control. But uh, the journey back then was interesting. Again, we I had a company car. I stayed, again, we had a bajillion frequent flyer points. My wife and I went to Europe once once a year because we could use points and live like kings. And we thought we were the coolest people in the world. And then uh, I think I made 12 grand the first year. I uh, got a used Honda Civic that didn't even have power locks or power windows commuted from Indianapolis to St. Louis on I-70, which if anyone has ever been on that road is arguably the most boring road in the history of the world. Um, the Starbucks weren't even around <laughs> yet uh, in Effingham and Terre Haute, which have now become a mainstay of my my journeys. But <laughs> I, I think the first year was 48 out of 52 weeks. Uh, I think the second year was probably something similar where I was there for a few days and then would come back home. So put a bajillion miles on, on the old Civic. I remember... I think it was year three, I was finally able to make a salary that was kind of, again, reasonable enough to to switch out cars. And I got an Acura um, and I got pulled over three times in a week just because I wasn't used to, you know, a 10-year-old car that, that if the wind blew too hard, it would fly off the road. So uh, it was it was a bit of a journey going even from from that. So I, I joke about that. But yeah, the the first few days were scrappy and in some capacity, I still like, I don't ever want to lose... Well, I feel like I'm more sage. Um, I think the savage part of the business is still there. I think we're all just kind of have that little bit of scrappiness that that has helped make us successful. Yeah, I love that story. It's fantastic, and that drive is very boring to St. Louis. But oh, it's it's awful. <laughs> so, it really is. Yeah, but Effingham might be one of the best town names in the country, though. You have to admit. Yeah, so. I, I, there's no <laughs> there's no pretenses when your name is, is Effingham. You just you set the bar low, and anything else you, you you perform higher than expectations. Exactly. So, self awareness in that savage stage is such an important characteristic of of a leader, and I like to say that. Self-awareness, I think our culture has made it very sexy and like, ooh, look at the unique things about me. But it, you know, when it's taken seriously, it's probably one of the, the most exposing and challenging um, components of entrepreneurship is like what's exposed about yourself. I'm just curious, what, what was a lesson or a couple lessons, you know, that were key for you in self-awareness in that stage of the journey? Absolutely. And I, and I think self-awareness, if you look at self-awareness, part, you know, version one, which would be kind of 2010, I would say it's this idea of creating this 
joking humility. So again, I use the technology thing as an, an easy one, but the reality is there were a lot of things that I lacked and still lack, um, just don't have the the necessary capacity to do um, as a human. And I, I felt like there was a sense of false humility where I try to, you know, kind of humble myself a bit by kind of showcasing stuff that really wasn't a big deal um, just to try to kind of show that self-awareness. And I think you fast forward to self-awareness now and, you know, we really speak to kind of what things do I do well? What things do I not do well? Kind of giving myself grace to say, it's okay to hire somebody to offset parts of my skill sets that I'm just not great at and acknowledging that I could still be a great leader without being the best at every part of the business. And again, I came with a little bit of a headset headway, just given the, my lack of technology experience, but it took me a while to kind of round out other parts of my skill sets. Even frankly speaking, I was chief operating officer when I came in, moved to CEO about five or six years ago. I'm a terrible operations leader. I mean, I really am. I don't, I, I, I started off in operations at Ingersoll Rands. I got my black belt Six Sigma. I worked on the shop floor for a bit. But the reality is that is not a skill set that I have that should be, you know, worthy of an of an organization where people are relying on me for good decision making. That's I can I can build a vision of where I want things to be, but the, you know, really diving into the statistics and the numbers and the process, I can fake my way around. I think Six Sigma helped fake it a way around for me because it gave you a lot of tools and skill sets. But at the end of the day, I think I realized just kind of the necessity to hire somebody smart there. I mean, we have, and, and he's extraordinary at his job. And I'm, I'm so thankful for that. So again, I think self-awareness still has a long way to go. You mentioned kind of it being sexy and I think it is, but to really just be honest with, with each other and ourselves, and then to give ourselves that grace of saying, I don't have to be good at everything has been arguably the most eye-opening and relieving experience of my life um, in terms of just knowing I don't have to be perfect in order to be a great leader. And I, I still somewhat stumble with that, but I would say on the whole, um, it's probably the biggest lesson I've learned in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's well articulated. I know from hearing your story before that you also, you know, in becoming and growing in leadership and growing GoodellNet also has coincided with growing your family. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious what, what that's been like for you to to be growing both at the same time and holding, you know, integrating both, holding both intention. Like what, what's that been like? Absolutely. And, and again, I think, I hope again, if we have employees listening to this, I hope it's, it's benefited the entire organization because at the end of the day, uh, as I, as the organization grew coincidentally, things like healthcare perks and flexible work schedules and remote work schedules. And again, obviously COVID changes everything now, but you know, where, we've acknowledged and celebrated the whole human. It's no coincidence that we matured into that at the exact same time that me and the other executive team members were growing their own families. I mean, it's, it's, I would love to say it's a purely altruistic part of our personalities, but the reality is we were living the same life. And (laughs) again, I don't fortunately don't work the 80 to 90 hour weeks that I used to work back then, but we had to figure out a way to make it work um, because that was the only way that we were going to be successful. And I think the good thing about that is we've always set a standard of if it's a perk that we give ourselves in the leadership functions and everybody in the company gets it. And so I think as we've grown the family, again, I have three kids now. I have an eight-year-old, a five-year-old and a one-year-old. We have really kind of leaned into what it's felt like to be leaders and parents. 
and said, what kind of organization would we want to work for? And then replicated that into the entire organization. So uh, like I said, I, I would hope it's 80% smart business and 20% selfishness. Uh, maybe maybe it's a little more selfish, but I think, like I said, we've created the organization that we want to work for. And hopefully coincidentally, it's created an organization that others can support. But yeah, it's it's been interesting. And my wife works, which I think is, especially here in Indiana, we found is not particularly normal, um, especially kind of in the entrepreneurial community where it seems like one spouse has to take a backseat to the other. And my wife and I have been very purposeful in making sure her career is of equal priority to mine. And frankly, the first five years, she was making more than me. So um, I'm thankful that we prioritized her career because if, you know we ate because of it. But at the end of the day, we've always been cognizant of you know when kids get sick, looking at our calendars and who's more important that day versus who's more important as a, as a general, as a general thing. So it's, it's been an interesting ride. I think it's forced a, a different level of maturity in my marriage. It's forced a different level of maturity as us as an organization, but I think it's forced me going back to zero excuses to a, not have excuses for doing well in each of the categories that I have to be a leader in. But more than that, it's, it's also forced me to really understand what things I say yes to, what things I say no to and use my time very thoughtfully because uh, going back to you can't be perfect at everything is I have to say no to things or else I'm going to explode and fail at every single thing that I do. Man, that's, if I could say one thing to new entrepreneurs, it would be, yeah, learning what to say yes to, what is your yes, and then what is your no, and then revisiting that as regularly as possible. Because, you know, in the business, yeah, how much a business can change in six months, how much a family can change in a year, like it's, you have to revisit that often. So that's, that's really smart. A lot of entrepreneurial journeys that I hear, there's this point of, you know, where people are like, I don't, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Did that ever happen for you at, in the early days of Goodellnet? So as you're saying this question, I actually thought, do I actually tell the truth on this one or do I give a, a garbage politics answer? And I'll, I'll actually give the truth. <laughs> and I don't know if that many people know this. So hopefully nobody, nobody that I know listens to this. Um, yeah. So I, again, I don't remember what year it was, maybe 2012, 2013. I actually went out and found another job. Um, I did. I, I, it, it was, like I said, it was, it was hundred hour weeks making very little money. We were just thinking about having a family. It felt overwhelming and I needed to find a sense of control. So I went out, I interviewed for a job, got the job, started to have conversations with the two other owners who were more thoughtful and kind, but also direct <laughs> and uh, pointed in their feedback of kind of getting me through and saying they experienced a similar, I'll call, I'll call it a breakdown, but a similar moment of, oh my gosh, how can I, how can I handle this? And, and got through it. And I was very specifically told I have no other choice but to stick around. <laughs> and I am, I'm very thankful I was pushed in that direction. But yeah, I mean, it hit a point of just, like I said, how do, how do I make this sustainable? And it didn't feel like I had the tools and the skill sets with which to make it sustainable. And it can maybe perhaps anticipating a question you may ask as a follow-up, which is what did I do next, is obviously I stuck around, clearly. Um, but I actually joined a, um, at the time it was Vistage, um, a peer group of other people. And one of the big criteria is they had to be parents and they had to be entrepreneurs. Um, because I realized part of the way that I learn is cheating and stealing ideas from others. 
And I needed to find that. And so that was my foray into what has now been a seven or eight year journey to being a part of CEO groups um, because I needed to feel like other people understood the way I felt. And I love my wife, but she doesn't know what it's like to be in this space. It's just, it's just a different space. And I would never know if, if you weren't doing it yourself. So I needed to be with the like-minded people who are trying to balance everything. And uh, so that was my breakdown moment. I have not looked for another job since. So I can happily say I'm, I'm eight years removed <laughs> from that. But uh, it, was, it, was, it, was a tough, it was a tough few months for me, um, as well as the organization behind closed doors. Yeah, I appreciate the transparency. And in terms of like, did, was that CEO peer group your idea? Was it someone else's idea? Like, did you have one of those like, other owners point you to that? Did you seek it out on your own? I think it was. It was. I wish I remember. I I, I think it was. I think it was a product of both. Um, I think it was a product of probably me being afraid to spend the money frankly, for the peer group, and then saying it's worth the money if it puts you in a better headspace. And so I would say it was kind of a combination of both of recognizing that, you know, they're, they're kind of my work husbands. Um, and, <laughs> you know, we've got to support each other in the way that, you know, is unique to each of us. And maybe I'm more needy than they are. But I, uh, I, needed, I needed that kind of social community uh, more so than they did. And I don't think I made it clear enough that that was an important part of the budgeting crisis because it was again back then it was I think you know it's it's eight to eight hundred to a thousand dollars a month you know it's twelve thousand dollars that's that's a big numbers back then um, and still is technically um, so you know for me it was it was a big inf- uh, outflow of cash and I obviously I stuck with it for five years six years um, and never looked back. That's that's good and that you knew that I mean shows great self awareness and then also that they supported you in that i think I'm thankful for that a lot of times you know you with especially that personality of people that don't need it as much or it's they have that like gutted out mentality and fi- you know just figure it out on your own like it's they can even i mean i've met personalities like that that can be shaming of like someone that's like i need this i need to spend money on it and um and so it seems like you had just a in multiple ways it's such a great founding team there and what what would you say was was key to that you know that team being as cohesive as it was like early on especially when it was so tight well the good thing about that is is we all started off as friends um before this whole thing happened so it's the risky you know it's the the friends turned married couple it's the friend turned business partner you know it's there's certainly a lot of risk to that and it puts a different spin on things when you kind of evolve your relationship to you know drinking beers and hanging out versus you know, being responsible for the mortgages of the people that work for you. So it's a, a bit of a change of interaction. But the good thing about that is they all know me. Um, and you'll figure it out pretty quickly in the show. I'm, I'm a unique personality. So uh, they, they knew, I think, what I needed in that time. And I think having the foundation of friendship to really get us started, I think was incredibly important for making that conversation real. So, and I think more than that, again, if I had one regret about it, I did the the job search without telling them. And I, I feel like I could have saved myself a few conversations uh, if I had just kind of talked to them about that beforehand. So that was a good lesson learned on my end. It's just, again, when you're feeling at that point, uh, share liberally because I think you'll be surprised by people's reactions. Yeah. So take us to the stage now where hey, you've, you've had some success. You're, you know, you're starting to grow. What, yep. 
what were you what were you guys looking for in those early team members? How did you know that they really got the vision of the type of company that you were building and wanted to wanted to grow? One of the I guess I would say one of the things that we set off to do really early in the process, which was this kind of establishment of our core values. And we were, again, I credit Vistage for really getting this started for us is um, we really identified what is, what are these core values? And, and again, I kind of feel like, again, it's, it's that, it's that self, it's a self-awareness, you know, there's two different ways of looking at core values, which is like, I want to check the box and then I want to make it fundamental to our organization. And I really think we spent the amount of time to make it fundamental to the organization. We went through a process of once we established those, we actually got rid of a few individuals and then replaced them and kind of went through a nice little chaotic period where we didn't really serve the needs of our employees or our clients in the best way we could. This is probably about 2013, 2014, where you get the proverbial, you know, the growing pains, but really setting forth, what does that look like? And, and again, a comment that I forgot, it maybe, maybe it was five years ago. Somebody made to me, it, was, it just feels like everybody at Cadell that's really happy. Like, how do you do it? And, I, and my response to that was very clear, which is we hire happy people. And I feel like that is that was a change for us is we look not just for happy people, but we look for this very specific profile that really works for who we are. And frankly, we scare the crap out of anybody else who doesn't fit that profile. And I think we've done a really good job of figuring out who we are. Um, I always kind of t- take our kind of journey and you use the savage stage. I'll use kind of from like infant to teenager to, I would say we're probably commensurate with my age, which is 38. But back then we were that teenager who was kind of breaking out of the house. We're kind of figuring out who you are, you know, doubt, you know, trying things out, figuring out that wasn't you. And around 2013, 2014, we kind of figured out who we were. We, we really built an identity because we knew we couldn't be everything to everyone. And we were growing enough that we could finally had some collateral in the market to say, you know, we would just need a live body who would be silly enough to work for this small company of a bunch of, you know, young dudes trying to start an IT company. Like we actually had street collateral to, to be able to say, you know, us as an organization has the cachet to search for the right people. So, so that was a big journey for us is kind of figuring out what that looks like. So long rambly story short is I think we really identified you know, what does happy look like? Or what does, what is the char- characteristic? Because I think at the end of the day, we figured out we couldn't change people to figure out who we were. We had to bring people and then highlight great parts of their personality or great parts of their intellect and let them shine in our organization. But we're not changing. We're, we're, we can buff people. We can't, you know, fundamentally you know, kind of re-sculpt them. And I think figuring out that that was how you choose people fundamentally changed uh, the way we do things. And just from a statistics perfect perspective, 2014, I think our turnover, both voluntary and involuntary is about 45%, which weirdly is actually market average for the industry that we're in. Uh, 2019, it was 98%. Uh, last year was 93, something like that. Um, in terms of both voluntary and involuntary in terms of retention of employees. So we're closer. We're not perfect. Like, and I, I always say that we have a lot, I still have uh, area to grow and improve, but we've really kind of figured out who's going to do well here and really leaned into it. And we're not willing to bring somebody on for a short time horizon, which is to say that we we would sooner be chaotic and stressed out for two more weeks and wait for the right person. Are the the tactics you use to try to scare non-happy people off are those uh, trade secrets or is, are you willing to share one of those? 
Yeah, no, I mean, again, they're, they're really not. Um, and we've really tried to change even just the way we do behavioral-based interviews. So uh, again, I'll, I'll use some examples here is we're very blunt when it comes to feedback. We do quarterly performance reviews. Uh, we do weekly one-on-ones. You log in and you're going to get a dashboard that basically says how you're doing and performing. This is not normal in the MSP space. We love data. Again, if there's one thing I picked up from Six Sigma training is we like to measure and uh, scorecard everything. And as a result, we, even in the interview process, talk to that. We talk to, a lot of times we'll say, hey, I saw a misspelling on your your resume. Talk to me a little bit about that and see how they react to really being called out in a group setting um, when they don't know us. And we we interview specifically around um, big mistakes that they've made and how, like what their level of ability with which to speak to core flaws in their personality or in their career experience. And if you're not honest about it, then you're probably not going to get along with us. You're going to find us uh, irritating. <laughs> so even in the way that we, we, we have a growth oriented mindsets, I feel like as again, you can kind of take two avenues, which is kind of this rosy unicorns, or you can say, Hey, we're going to be open and honest about where we need to improve. And we're going to figure out ways to solve it together. It's not a bad thing. Like I said, I, I, as a leader talk about all, all the time about where I'm, I, I fail, but we really try to kind of push people into, like I said, being afraid of saying, I don't, well, I don't want to be told how bad I am. And I, I, I want to be the winner and the best. And we're letting people know that's probably not going to happen here. And, and to understand what that means, not to say we're not, we don't celebrate successes or have fun or again, it sounds like we're this really draconian company, but the reality is we're, we're <laughs> open and honest about where we can improve. And we expect people to be open and honest about learning to grow. And we flood them with resources in order to improve. And so I think you have to have the right culture in order to be that forceful about constructive feedback, but that's the type of people we like. So that's just one example, but I would say it's, that's an easy one to get rid of people pretty quick <laughs> in terms of in the interview process where they say they're not going to be able to get it here. And if you look at the team now, they're great at it and, and they really they really embrace it. Yeah, I can imagine if I had gone through that, just how much joy it would then bring me to like to be a part of the interview process. Uh, just almost <laughs> like this is a, a, a rite of passage here that all of us have to go through. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Yeah, I, and it's not that scary. Again, I think we 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 flesh it out as, as, as well as we can, but yeah, it's, it's, we've done a good job of, of, of making sure only the right people get through, through the doors. And it, sh- it shows with, as I look at the, the population of people that work for us now, it's, it's inspiring. Yeah. You've mentioned a couple of times, you know, named a few of your cultural values and obviously like each of those have kind of behaviors that are undergirding those. So what does it, it look like? So that person gets through the door which obviously you're doing a lot more vetting than a lot, a lot of companies do in terms of the interview process. But still, there are times where you have to confront, you know, hey, this, these are areas that you're not living up to the values. Like, or, or maybe, you know, you want to celebrate when people are. Like, what, what does the confrontation and the celebration look like? Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, again, one of the things, I'll go to the celebration just because I sound like such a mean guy. So I'll go to the happy parts first. <laughs> you know, what, I mean, again, everything from, again, even our performance review process, we really, I mean, the, you, it's three questions. Where, where, uh, where were you impactful? Make an impact. Where did you have the opportunity to do better? 100% accountability. And then where are you going to look to improve, which is our grow or die? I mean, it's three questions. It's a very easy performance management process. So starting there and then really kind of celebrating, rewarding people there. 
we do, um, there's a function that we have, which is called cheers for peers. It really, it links up back to our Microsoft teams instance where I can say, Hey Dan, like great job, like really good interviewing today. Um, and it's a public cheers and everyone in the company can see, Hey, great meeting. Good job with this hard clients. Good job with this difficult situation. Um, here's great feedback that I heard. And we send about 150 or 200 a week of those and they're public facing, you get no reward from it. You get, actually, frankly, you get, a, you get a little Lego. And every time that you get one of those, you get a Lego. And then so you can see, well, when we were actually at desks, you'd see people's desks. And, you know, the you know people that have been here for a while have these huge, like, castles being built. And the new people were building their castles. And you can kind of see in a very, like, tangible way of these are the number of people I've impacted um, here. We've really reinforced things like even just the way we talk about what we do. Again, we're at the core. We're an IT consulting company. And so 50% of what we do is just basic help desk. And, you know, that's a really hard job to do. And we really celebrate, hey, every time you're picking up the phone, you've got an anxious, you know, upset person. And your job is to make their make them do their job better. And really kind of forcing that much, speaking to our metrics in the way of impact to human life versus, you know, you, you, you clean, completed a ticket or you completed this. So really kind of kind of navigating some of those things. And we have some work to do there, but really kind of making sure it ties back to our values, even the way that we scorecard people. So you'll see it everywhere in, in what we do and how we do it. We talk about even people who have complaints where one of the 100% accountability values is if there's something going wrong in the organization and you haven't asked for resources to fix it, it's not my fault anymore. It's yours. Like take take advantage of that time. And so a lot of these things are just kind of pervasive in how we talk and the common vocabulary that we've created in order to kind of really kind of share and live the values that we've stated. I like that. It's really good. I like the Legos. I've heard that, you know, especially with a number of true you companies, is that something that was like widely promoted at, at true you? You know, I think, I, I don't know where I stole it from. I can, I would say like my, I am not the best idea guy, but I'm, I'm really good at curating ideas, which is like, <laughs> I hear 10, I can pick the two that I think are going to work and I implement one. So yeah. So I've shared that a few times, but I will not take credit for being the first one. I can't remember which company it was, to be totally honest. But yeah, we, uh, we're, I'm, I'm a shameless stealer of ideas. So anything you hear today is probably taken from somebody else. Um, <laughs> I just put them all together in a way that works. Nice. Love it. Well, I like to finish out the show with just two lightning round questions and one. So good at lightning rounds. You're talking and giving one mm-hmm. sentence of advice to a new entrepreneur that's just stepping out, like what, what would you say? Ooh, I'm not good at one sentences. Um, you can have two or three. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I would say know what you don't know and find either outsource or staff individuals to fill in the gaps because you're going to, to save two bucks today, you're going to spend $20,000 later. So do it right the first time and find people that can augment where you're, where you're not strong. I was like, good pretty good. Love it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Second one is, um, and I'll just give a little bit of background because this is the philosophy behind the show is that, you know, in order to make that that journey from savage to sage and to really finish it well, an entrepreneur really knows how to leave the business and recharge. You know, what for you is, you know, going to be the most effective way that you recharge and just take a break from the business? Absolutely. And I, I guess I, I wish I would say it's, you know, playing with my kids or, or something like that, but it's I, so... Those that know me well, I uh, I do uh, ultra distance running. I used to do kind of more long distance endurance uh, training, but now it's I've kind of focused on running. It's weird, but it's even though I'm running longer distances, it takes less time than doing triathlons. So 
given everything else, I had to slim it down. But no, for me, I will never be good at sitting and meditating. I will never be good at any of these things. But for me, a run in the woods is about as meditative as it possibly can get. And so that has been my my source of strength and peace because it's it's my one chance. Again, it's, it sounds odd that I'm a tech CEO, but it's my one chance to escape from technology. And it's it's my happy place. Yeah, I share that answer totally. I, I live like six minutes from Eagle Creek Park. And, um, oh, and so, yeah, it's easy to get out and do five miles and just be a completely different person after that. So it's, it, it yeah. really is game changing to me. So I think just movement, there's something about movement that's primal um, that really kind of sets the brain in, in a good place. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Nick, and your wisdom. And if people want to get in touch with you and Goodellnet, besides listening to Zero Excuses, where else would you point them? Yeah, I would I would say really starting off at, at LinkedIn. Um, it's really the only social media that I'm actually active on. Again, going back to the tech CEO that doesn't use technology. Um, but yeah, <laughs> LinkedIn, I, I do spend some time. I share a lot about what we do as a company and I do engage quite a bit. So if uh, if you reach out, I promise I'll get back to you there. It's probably the best way to reach me. Well, cool. yeah, we'll drop that in the show notes. And thank you so much again. Talk to you soon. Yeah, it was an honor. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com.